Happy July 4th. Uh, I know there's some fireworks that have been going off around the area lately. Um, there'll be more in the coming days. Um, we are in a series uh, looking at the parables. We just started this last week, and I know, again, it's kind of odd to start a series in the middle of the summer, but I just really wanted to do that. So we're, here we are. We're into the parables, and uh, today we come to the first parable. It's the parable of the sower, but let me just kind of backtrack to last week for a minute in case you missed it, uh, and also just to give us kind of a um, recap of what we covered. So there were some rules for interpretation when it comes to the parables, and we'll, you'll see some of these pop up today. Uh, the first of those rules is rule number one. Here it comes. I gave him the wrong slide order. Anyhow, here we go. Rule number one is to seek the main point. So every parable has a main point. We want to seek what that main point is. Rule number two is to look to see if Jesus interprets the parables. Because for a lot of these parables, including the one that we're going to look at today, just a few verses later, Jesus tells the disciples, here's what this means. And so if that happens, then we'll just go to what Jesus interpreted, how he interpreted the parable. Uh, the third rule of interpretation is to consider the context. So if Jesus doesn't interpret the parable for us, then we look at what's going on in the surrounding storyline, what's happening in the other parts of the Gospels, just in that area. And then we use that to try and figure out, okay, well, here's what the parable means. Um, and the fourth rule is to avoid using parables as a cornerstone of doctrine. Um, and we run into this a lot. When you start going through the parables, people start looking to the parables and they're trying to make parables speak to eschatology and they're trying to make parables speak to eternal security and i'm going is that really what jesus had in mind your systematic theology book when he was sharing this parable so we need to be careful about using parables to be a cornerstone of doctrine and then the fifth rule of interpretation is to uh, approach the parables with spiritual readiness these are intended the parables are intended to cut to the heart the parables are intended in an instantaneous moment for somebody who hears this to go, you know what, Jesus is asking me to live different. Jesus is asking me whether or not I'm a true follower of his. Jesus is asking me whether, what, what is my level of devotion to him. And so in that moment, the parable is designed to kind of bring that into question and then to cause us to want to make some changes in our lives. So uh, that's kind of our rules of interpretation. Again, we'll see some of those play out as we get into this today. Our parable for today comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9. So we're going to read the parable. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9. While I've got you up and standing, we've got this flag over here, and it's and this couple days is our birthday. So I would like for us to take a few moments, put a right hand over our heart, and pledge allegiance to the flag as we get started here. All right, here we go. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Remain standing, Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 3. Here we go. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I know it's kind of a lengthy parable. Some of the ones that we read will be much shorter in the coming weeks, but that one had a little bit of extra heft to it. So let's go ahead and dive into this. We're going to start at verse 1 of chapter 13, so just before Jesus tells this parable. Verse 1 says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Now those first three words of verse 1 tell us something. That same day. It tells us that there were other events 
that happened on this day besides Jesus just telling this parable of the sower. And so if we're to circle back to Matthew chapter 12, we'll discover what the other events of that day were. I'm just going to give you some of the highlights so you can see what kind of a busy day the Lord Jesus had had. Um, Jesus' disciples are out at the beginning of chapter 12 plucking grain in the morning from some of the the wheat growing in some of the fields. And they're um, plucking the grain, and it's on the Sabbath day, we learn. So this is a a Sunday, well, it starts on Saturday evening. uh, And so so Jesus' disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath, perhaps having some breakfast, making their way to church. And the Pharisees see them doing this and question Jesus about it. What makes it uh, Jesus makes it to the synagogue while he's there. Um, a man has a withered hand. Jesus heals the man with a withered hand. Again, the Pharisees question Jesus, saying, Why are you healing somebody? Didn't you know that it's the Sabbath? We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. As though healing somebody was um, work. Uh, the Pharisees then storm out of the church, and they go off, and they try to have a little powwow, and they want to figure out, How can we uh, deal with this guy, Jesus? Meanwhile, Jesus uh, heals a bunch more people. I guess people in the surrounding area had heard about this miracle worker was in town. And hey, if I've got an ailment and there's a guy that can work miracles, I'm going to go check him out. So that's what people were doing. Matthew 12 and verse 15 reports that Jesus, aware of the Pharisees, withdrew from there. That is, he withdrew from the synagogue and many followed him and he healed them all pretty busy day so far. We learn a little bit later in verse 11 that a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. Jesus heals the guy. The Pharisees then try to explain how is it that Jesus was able to heal this fella, and they say it's because he was conjuring Satan. They say he does this by the power of Satan. That's how he healed this guy, and Jesus rebuffs the Pharisees. He says, no, y'all are completely off base. All of this again in a day's work. Jesus then makes his way to someone's home. Perhaps it's Sunday afternoon lunch. I'm not sure how that worked. But anyhow, that's what they're doing. And so the Pharisees show up again. This time they ask Jesus to show us a sign. For this is all back in Matthew chapter 12. They show us a sign that, uh, that, that you really are uh, something special. As if healing all these people wasn't a good enough sign. But nevertheless, they want another sign. So Jesus very firmly this time rebukes the Pharisees, not only for their rejection of him, but also because they're trying to deceive other people. They're trying to draw other people from their interest in Jesus. Hey, look, don't pay attention to this guy. Don't listen to what he has to say. And so Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Well, the next thing we learn is that Jesus' mom shows up. Yeah, Mary. She shows up along with his brothers and his sisters. We learn over in some of the other Gospels that this incident was them trying to stop Jesus from doing his public ministry, uh, from from doing these healings and doing these teachings. And they're not really sure that he should be out there doing this. Are you qualified to do that? I mean, they should have known that he was qualified. But anyhow, they weren't sure if he's qualified. I'm not sure what the reasons were. Back in Matthew 12 and verse 46, it says that uh, his mother, his brothers stood outside and asked to speak to him. Right? (laughs) Uh, they wanted him to stop doing this. Jesus refuses to come outside. Instead, he says to the people gathered inside Matthew 12 and verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He says in verse 50, it is whoever does the will of my father in heaven. That is who my brother is. That is who my mother is. That is who my sister is. In other words, that's who my family is, not the people who are standing outside the house telling me to stop doing ministry. Okay, that's going to make for an interesting Thanksgiving dinner. Um, He says earlier in chapter 12 and verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Ouch, right? Matthew 13 and verse 1, that same day. Can we all agree that Jesus has had a pretty busy day? It's been an eventful afternoon. Uh, What's interesting is when we arrive at Matthew chapter 13, we discover that the day is not over yet. 
Matthew 13 and verse 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Now I've got a picture for you here. This is an aerial photo. I think the first one that we want to look at is the aerial photo of the Sea of Galilee. You can see there on that little aerial photo on the uh, northern section. This is the northwest uh, section of the Sea of Galilee. So north in that map is the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is where a lot of these miracles, where the synagogue episode happens. A lot of the uh, episodes from Matthew chapter 12 take place. Jesus then walks south from the Sea of Capernaum to what is believed to be this little cove. So I've got a couple pictures for you here. You can see the little rocky beach. He walks down to this cove, and it's just a little way south of Capernaum, um, and it says that he was there at this in this area. So we would imagine that uh, we're given all that has transpired. You know, it's been a full day, that the day's now getting along, and the sun is setting in the west. It's licking the tops of the little ripples of waves out across the Sea of Galilee. He's looking across the sea. It's nine miles across, right? So it's quite, quite a ways. Jesus is testing, arresting, I'm sorry. He's thinking about his interactions with the Pharisees. He's thinking about the people that he had healed earlier that day. He's thinking about the demon-possessed man who is now reunited back with his family. He's thinking about his mom. He's thinking about James, his brother, and Jude. And how one day they're going to come around, but that won't be for a little while yet. Someone spots Jesus sitting there on the little rocky beach. A crowd begins to gather once again. It's still the Sabbath day. Nobody's been at work, so I don't have anything to do. So, hey, let's go hear what Jesus has to say. The disciples are there. Someone pulls up in a boat. Jesus hops in the boat and pushes off a little ways into this cove from the shoreline. So many people have gathered that it's impossible for Jesus to be able to address them from the shoreline. So let me hop in the boat, move off a little ways, and then I can talk to the folks. I mean, this is not 30 people. It says, the, it says in verse uh, 2, and great crowds gathered. I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. It says in verse 3 that he told them many things in parables. That is, he told the crowds many things. He didn't just tell the disciples this. This was something he shared with all of the people who are there. Jesus rattles off then a litany of parables. We'll look at a number of these in the coming weeks in Matthew chapter 13. But the very first parable that Jesus shares in the Gospels is this parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower goes something like this. There's a farmer, and the farmer sows some seeds. That would have been a very common image for the people who were gathered there on the shoreline. They had seen farmers go out with their little basket, reach into the basket, get some seeds, and broadcast those seeds out across their freshly uh, hoed fields. Um, maybe some of them were farmers themselves and had participated in that. If you'll notice, the farmer in the story appears at the beginning of the story, just in the opening lines, and then he disappears from the story. And the reason for that is this is not a parable about the farmer. This is not a parable about sowing seeds. That is a secondary issue. Remember, rule number one of our interpretation is what? Seek the main point. That's right. And the main point is not evangelism. That's not what this parable is about. It's not about sowing seeds. This, this parable, rather, is about, what kind of, about these four different kinds of soil. The four different kinds of soil are what occupies the body of this parable. And so this is not a, soil, a, a parable about evangelism. Rather, it's a parable about what kind of soil are you? What kind of soil am I? I think I got a slide for us, and that'll show that question. That's really the dominating question 
of this parable. That's the main point that this parable is trying to get the audience that's gathered there on the shoreline to ask and think to themselves and reflect on what kind of parable, I'm sorry, what kind of soil am I? Remember, the design of the parables is to cut to the heart. The design of the parables is to cause people to get it right there on the spot and have to make a decision, make some changes in their lives, stir things up, cause them to reprioritize where necessary. The first kind of soil is described in verse 4, and as he says in verse 4, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. I've got a picture for you here. These are actually pictures from Terry Biscoglia's trip to Israel. Um, he shared these with me. He and I were talking earlier this week. I always like to ask Terry um, his thoughts on some of the stuff that I'm preaching, and so it's great to have him and to have my Thursday morning breakfast group, which I believe is this week. So guys, I'll see you on Thursday. Um, but anyhow, this is a, these are pictures that he had from his trip to Israel. And you can see there in these couple of pictures, there's a path that goes around the field. And this was very wise of the farmer, right? Because if somebody wants to get from one side of the field to the other side, he doesn't want them traipsing through his you know, freshly plowed ground that's got all this seed out there in it. He wants them to go around it. And so the paths made a way for people to make their way around it. Well, because this was this, uh, you know, often trodden area um, and the soil was packed down and there weren't a whole lot of stuff growing there because of that, the seeds that fell on this, the birds could spot that stuff really easily. And so the birds swoop in and they begin to eat the seeds that are on this path. And we later learn in the chapter, when Jesus interprets this passage, that the birds in the story represent the whispers of Satan in the ears of would-be followers. As Satan, like the Pharisees, sows seeds of doubt, he says, are you sure that you saw him heal that person? Are, are, you, sure that that, are you sure that that person really had the problem that, you, that they claim to have? Are you sure this whole thing wasn't just a big hoax? And so that's the whispers of Satan trying to draw people away from faith in the Lord Jesus, trying to ish, uh, create skepticism and doubt. Another kind of soil is the rocky soil. Verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. That is where the roots had nowhere to go. Now, according to Jesus' interpretation later in the chapter, the rocky soil represents persecution and tribulation. And how some folks feel a little bit of that, or when they feel a little bit of that, they begin to shrink back, they begin to wither in their commitment to the Lord. Jesus is saying uh, here, um, sitting on the shoreline, that some of you are curious about me. Some of you are buzzing with excitement about me. Maybe you actually were one of the people that got healed this morning. Um, but tomorrow, when the knock comes at the door, and it's your local rabbi, or it's one of these Pharisees, and they want to know what do you think about what you heard yesterday? What is your opinion about that healer that traveled through town? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, I, 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 I'm with him, I'm for him? Or are you going to say, you know what? Jesus, thanks for the miracle. Great sermon. But I'm really not looking for any T-R-O-U-B-L-E. Some of you went to Travis's concert this weekend. Jesus says, or this past week, Jesus says to the crowds, verse 6, But when the sun rose up, those seeds on the rocky path were scorched. Since they had no root, they faded or withered away. Jesus reports that there's a third kind of soil, verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. He goes on to tell the disciples later that the thorns represent, middle of verse 22, he says that the, the thorns represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness 
of riches. Notice that Jesus does not denounce riches. What Jesus denounces is putting our faith and our trust in those riches, in wealth, and putting our identity and our value in those things. Back to verse 7. He says, those thorns of worldly concerns and riches dominated the soil, so dominated the affection and the attention of the soil that the thorns grew up and choked out all the wonderful things that the soil had heard earlier that day, that the soil had experienced earlier that day, and it choked out all the wonderful things that this soil um, was beginning to understand. Jesus is warning the crowds, don't let that happen. That is a very real threat. It is a very real tendency, he's saying, for y'all. And so don't allow the cares of the world and the comfort of riches to choke out a vibrant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let him continue to be your first priority, not these other worldly cares and concerns. Verse 8, last kind of soil. Finally, some of the seed, verse 8, fell on good soil. Now, here's a question, and it's one of the questions that I was thinking of as I was kind of going through this text this week, is what makes the soil good? You see there in the verse, the verse says that uh, it, it was good soil and it produced fruit or it produced grain. And so we may think to ourselves, well, the reason why the soil is good is because it produced stuff. Well, that is an indicator that it's good soil, but that's not what makes the soil good. Um, fruitfulness rather, is the end product of good soil. It is a feature of good soil, but fruitfulness is not what makes the soil good. That's like saying that unfertilized soil will produce a bumper crop of corn. That, that nutrient-starved soil is going to produce all the green beans you could ever want. That's not true. I mean, any gardener knows you got to go out, you got to till the ground, you got to work the ground, you got to water the stuff, you got to put fertilizer out if you want to get that kind of a crop. So what makes the soil good is not the fact that the soil produces, but what makes the soil good is that it's nutrient rich. What makes the soil good is that it is full of life-giving, uh, <coughs> whatever the word is, the stuff you gardeners know, uh, that gives that crop ability to grow. Jesus tells uh, later in his interpretation what makes the soil good. He says in verse 23 that the good soil is the one who hears the word, who hears the parable, <clears throat> and understands it. That is, they get it. They get God's truth. They get God's word. It penetrates their heart. This is more than just head knowledge, but this is heart knowledge as well. That's what Jesus is after. This is the person who observes rule number five of interpreting the parables. This isn't just about information that I'm trying to gather. This isn't just about getting the parable right and being able to answer the questions correctly on the multiple choice afterwards. But rather, this is like this stuff has changed my life. I heard God's truth, and it nourished me. It filled me. It, it made me nutrient-rich, and I want, I'm going to go from this place and live differently. This is the person who understands that Jesus is inviting them to self-reflection. This is the person who is asking the question in the aftermath of the parable, what kind of soil am I? That's what Jesus is after. He's not after information exchange. He's after transformation. He wants to see people's lives living differently in the aftermath of experiencing God's truth. The result of that kind of question, the result of that kind of request, the result of that kind of hunger is inner transformation of the heart. Again, that's what Jesus is after. The soil is made good by hearing and understanding. And then fruit comes from that. Now this fruit, Jesus says, comes in varying amounts. End of verse 8. Some 100, some 60, some 30. 
Despite what some commentaries may say, uh, and perhaps you've even heard this preached in some sermons, uh, these yields of 160 and 30 do not represent some sort of supernatural bumper crop. Um, I, I've, I've read that through some of the older commentaries, more newer commentaries have been like, no, we went out there in the fields and we saw what a good crop looks like, and 100 actually, is, it's a good, it's a very good crop, but it's not like supernatural. Uh, so we kind of back away from that a little bit. 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold, again, these are good crops. It's just not that there's some kind of supernatural, superhuman kind of a crop. Last thing here, so Jesus finishes the parable. He calls for an intermission. I guess he wanted to give everybody a chance to digest the parable, kind of sit and talk about it amongst their friends. I don't know, figure out what it was about. The next thing that follows in Matthew's narrative is a question. It's posed by the disciples. We looked at this last week. If you didn't get a chance to uh, hear last week, it's online. You can go and check that out. But the the disciples ask Jesus a question directly to him, privately to him. I suppose they're sitting in the boat with him. The disciples ask, verse 10, why do you speak to the people in parables? That is not, in other words, that's not something we have heard you do before. In the past, it's always been pretty direct statements. You know, here's how you're supposed to pray, our Father who art in heaven. But here you're telling this story, and we're supposed to gather something from that story. We've never heard you talk like that or teach like that before. Jesus says several things in way of response to their question. We talked about some of those last week. One of the things that he says here is a quote from the book of Isaiah, interestingly enough. Apparently, Isaiah had prophesied about the reaction of the Israelites, about a rea- the reaction of the Jewish people when the Messiah would show up on the scene. And Jesus quotes Isaiah here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15. He says, Isaiah writes, For this people's heart, he's talking to the disciples sitting in the boat, hundreds of people gathered on a shoreline, for this people's heart, guys, has grown dull. And with their ears... They can barely hear, and their spiritual eyes, they have closed them. In other words, most of these folks, fellas, even after a day like we've had, think about that, even after a day like we've had, most of these folks won't be good soil. Jesus says, fellas, Isaiah predicted this, and I'm telling you, despite all my miracles, despite all the things that I've shared with them, these folks will find some reason for today's headlines to line tomorrow's waste can. Let me read verse 15 for you again. This is Isaiah predicting the level of reception that the Messiah will get when he arrives. Verse 15, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. They may look like they're interested, but let's give them a day or two and they'll forget about me. If it's not the lying Pharisees that are going to deceive them, it'll be the cares of the world. If it's not the cares of the world, then it'll be creature comforts. It'll, something will enter in there and will cause whatever it is that they're excited about to bleed out and they won't be interested in, in me anymore. These folks will forget about me. Again, some of them won't. Some of them will be good soil, but he says most of them will forget. All right, well, that is our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask the question that we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, If you remember, the parables are designed to evoke a response. The parables are designed to cut to the heart, 
right, to, to cause people to stop and self-evaluate on the spot, in an instant. This is not some deep theological teaching that Jesus gets. It's going to take, you know, years of seminary training in order to understand. People should be able to just gra- grasp it simply, easily, and then that causes them to make some sort of a decision. And so Jesus, in this parable, wants us to ask the question. I think we've got a slide for you here. Jesus wants you to ask this question, what kind of soil am I? In other words, what kind of heart do I have? Um, when God's truth enters my mind, am I going to be like the Pharisees who were constantly questioning and doubting and, and never yielding? They've always got one more problem. They've got one more question. They've got one more what if. Never taking that leap of faith. They just stand off on the sidelines in their skepticism. They stand off on the sidelines in their doubt, and they never come to a relationship with the Lord Jesus. It was St. Anselm, Archbishop of Can- Canterbury, who famously coined the phrase, faith-seeking understanding. But notice what the phrase is not. The phrase is not understanding-seeking faith. See, it starts with faith, and then our faith, as it grows, and as we seek God, and as we read our word, and as we get together with God's people, we begin to gain more and more understanding. But friends, we cannot get all of our questions answered, and then expect, okay, now I'm ready to take that leap of faith, which really isn't any leap at all, is it? It's just entering into a relationship with Jesus now that I've got all my questions satisfied. Um, If I wait until my questions are satisfied, friends, I'll never enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's like a boyfriend or a girlfriend who is hedging about getting married. How do I know that she really is the one? How do I know that he's the person that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with? Well, sooner or later, you know what? Do you love him? Yeah. Do you love her? Yeah. Well, then, okay, it's time to meet up at the altar. Let's get this thing done. Let's get this thing tied up. I mean, eventually, you got to take the leap. Friends, if you are here today and you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. In other words, stop waiting. Your questions will be answered, but let's go ahead and get started on this relationship. Give your life to Christ. He is waiting for you, something for you to think about. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Well, there's soil number two, the rocky soil. The soil and mu- that soil and much or the soil in that part of the world, is only about three inches deep. Um, there's places where it's much more than that, but a lot of the area around that part of the world is covered in, in limestone rock. And you go down about three inches, and then you're into that rock. And so when you're trying to grow stuff in that, the roots don't have very far to go down before they hit that rock, and uh, you know they don't have a way to draw up that moisture from deeper down into the earth. So plants struggle to get their roots down deep. Jesus is saying if your roots in Christ are shallow, the odds of your faith holding up under opposition are quite low. And opposition, friends, does not have to be government-sponsored. Opposition can be as simple as the guy at work that doesn't like the fact that you're a Christian. Opposition can be as simple as that parent whose kids attend your kid's school and they don't like the fact that FCA is meeting in, their, in the building. Opposition can simply be unbelieving family. Opposition can come from fellow Christians who are more liberated in their view of the Bible and in their treatment of the Bible. Opposition can come from all kinds of places. When the roots are not deep, friends, that opposition has a way of drying up a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, if the devil can't own you, he at least wants to make you useless. A third kind of soil, soil number three. 
is a soil that gets sidetracked with the cares of this world or with the comfort of riches. Friends, Jesus warned against this. We all know the ease and comfort and gaining more and more stuff and trying to immunize ourselves against financial hardship, that those things can easily become the driving force of our life. Jesus is reminding us here with this parable, through this parable, not to be that kind of soil. Jesus always wants for us to occupy, or he always wants to occupy the top spot in our life. He wants to be second to no one, and that includes the God of money and the God of comfort. You know, Abraham was a very wealthy man. David was a very wealthy man. So was his son Solomon. David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon wrote part of the Bible. These were men who had tremendous amounts of wealth. So it wasn't wealth that disqualified them. Rather, it was that they didn't put their trust, they didn't put their value in their wealth. They put their value in knowing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was their priority. That was the focus of their lives. Sure, God blessed them. But the point was they had this vibrant relationship with the Lord that they maintained. Finally, number three, there's the good soil. As we pointed out earlier, this is the soil that Jesus said, Matthew 13 and verse 23, that hears the word and understands it. This is the heart that is hungry for God's truth, hungry to develop a closeness with Jesus. This is the heart that is asking the question at the end of the parable, well, what kind of soil am I? I mean, Jesus, if you're describing all these soils and you're saying some of us are this and some of us are that, well, which one am I? This is the soil that, that, or this is the heart that comes to God like David in Psalm chapter 139, verse 23, and says, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my thoughts. Verse 24, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, a heart that maintains a posture like that is a heart that naturally produces the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. But it starts with hearing the word and understanding the word. Let me tell you a little secret. I'm going to close with this. God knows what kind of soil each of us is. And there's times in my life when I've, I've been good soil. There's times in my life when I've been like the Pharisees and I've got nothing but questions. And, I, and I'm just kind of wallowing in doubt and I'm just wallowing in skepticism. There's times in my life when I've felt like I'm the only one here that thinks this and maybe I just need to quietly go away. I've been all these soils. A question that Jesus invites us to ask today, our responsibility before him is to say, Jesus, you show me what kind of soil I am. And then you change me. You're the master teacher. You change me where I need to be changed. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you again for speaking to us today from your word. Thank you for the check in our spirit uh, to, be, to be evaluated, uh, to see ourselves the way you see us. Lord, we can't hide anything from you. Sometimes we hide stuff from ourselves. But Lord Jesus, we can't hide anything from you. Help us to do some personal inventory. To look on the inside and to see the man, to see the woman that you see. And then Lord, just to say with open hands, God, change me where I need to be changed. Make me into good soil. Help me to understand. 
Give me ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, we thank you for this table today, the reminder of your broken body and of your shed blood. Holy Spirit, in the quietness of these moments of communion, we ask that you would stir and work in our hearts, point out what needs to be pointed out, and invite us to change. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.